0: Let me shove a word of explanation up the front end of this podcast before we kick off. This week's interviewee was due to be the director of the Black Cultural Archives, but when we got to the archives microphone aloft, Paul Reed was nowhere to be found, and it turns out that an administrative error, which was nobody's fault, it was their fault, it was nobody's fault, meant that Paul Reed had no idea whatsoever that we were coming. So we had two options. One was to pack up and go home, or the other was to press on regardless. And the latter option was facilitated by one of Paul's colleagues, Victoria Northridge, boldly stepping up at a moment's notice to record a 45-minute podcast on the fly. I think she's brilliant, and she's even more brilliant for doing the whole thing with no warning at all.
1: Hey, baby, let me take you down So we'll play some strange sights and the sound. You ain't never seen the light before Just as long through
0: on Windrush Square. We're in Brixton today and what a day it is. Very pleasant it looks too. We're in the Black Cultural Archives here in Brixton with me, Victoria Northridge. She's the collections manager and perhaps we could zoom in on the building and it's got a just a, an amazing history.
2: Yes, it is. It's uh, got a varied history. Um, it was originally two residential houses that belonged to a philanthropist called Robert Stone, built in about 1806.
0: Oh, he was a philanthropist. I didn't know. Yeah,
2: he's a philanthropist, and unfortunately, um, he was such a good philanthropist, he left his family in a lot of debt when he passed away. So um, the family had to sell the two houses, um, which was one and one, number one and number three Ephra Road at that time. And so, in their time, the two houses have been various. Uh, you know uses. It's been a young school for girls. It's been the base for Brixton Liberal Club. Uh, in the 1900s, it was the Raleigh College for boys. Uh, I think in the 20s and 30s, Orange Luxury Coaches acquired the building and used it as their base for their um, coaches going around Britain.
0: L- London to Brighton Yes, probably.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then by, I think, the 60s, uh, Lambeth Council had acquired the building. And um, so we have some photographs uh, from Douglas Parker, who's a well-known Brixton photographer, in 1989, um, of uh, a car lot, Kellett Cars, that was outside the front of the building here, as well as a huge warehouse um, but by the late 1990s um, the building had fallen into disuse and disrepair and it was during the um, regeneration of Brixton that started in, in the millennium in the year 2000 that um, Black Cultural Archives put in a bid with Lambeth Council for this to be our new heritage centre which was approved and we got the lottery, heritage lottery funding money a year later and it's taken us until since last July to fully refurbish and open the building.
0: And there's mention I think in the history of the building itself, uh, the fabric of the building itself of Georgian style mm-hmm. and that is going to tie very nicely to the exhibition that's being advertised outside but right now we're in the library.
2: Yeah this is our reading room, um, we have our two library collections here um, so this space is open for both people viewing the archive material Wednesday till Friday 10 to 4 but also for anybody who just wants to browse the library material as well so we do open every Saturday afternoon 1 till 4 as well. So what we've got up here are two different uh, reference library collections. The ones with the red spots are part of the Runnymede Trust collection. I don't know if you've heard of the Runnymede Trust at all. They're a race relations think tank. They started in 1968 and they provide information to the government on any race related issues and it's our largest collection that we have not only of the library but also their archive of research files, press cuttings and magazines from 1968 up till last year. Um, the ones with the blue spots are our own Black Cultural Archives library that's been gathered together since the organisation began in 1981, um, and that's been through many kind benefactors, through many of the original founding members, including Len Garrison, who were going out and purchasing books and then donating it to the, ar- to the uh, archive, and also you know volunteers and individual donors who've uh, donated their, uh, their libraries over the years.
0: Perhaps we can have a look at one or two of the items here that are available to people. What would you steer people towards?
2: Um, Well, if anybody's just first coming, you know, a complete novice to black British history, the book I would always um, direct them to is Staying Power by Peter Fryer, which is just over here. (laughs) This was published in, I think, about 1984. Peter Fryer was a journalist and basically he was one of the first journalists to meet people off of the uh, Windrush boat, so African and Caribbean people coming in 1948. And um, through interviewing them, he sort of became very intrigued and interested in their kind of life history, their life stories, not just the individuals, but kind of as an overview of African and Caribbean history. And so he decided to undertake um, a whole deal of research and... uh, discovered that there was you know a black presence earlier than 1948 you know from roman times there have there has been an african caribbean presence within britain so if anybody wants to to know about the, the general history of black people in britain this is a good place to start with this book
0: so here's my question how is it that that was a fact that was forgotten the fact that there were black people here for several thousand years
2: Good question. Um, I don't think it's forgotten. I think people who are interested in the history know, but it's, I think generally it's not highlighted in schools, for example, apart from most recently, of course, uh, um, Mary Seacole and her involvement in the Crimea War. Um, but there's no... And now the Windrush, I think there is a bit of mention there, but um, but there's no... Um, reference um, anywhere else to Black British history within the national curriculum, and that carries on with higher higher education, post you know postgraduate, undergraduate. There's there's no sort of real um, reflection upon that presence.
0: It is I mean that seems strange to me, mm. really, that it, by its omission, it's not assumed people have been travelling mm.
2: across the world, yes. but for as, yeah. as long as there have
0: been people, uh, it, it seems rather odd. To, to think or to assume that they wouldn't be uh, representatives of no. all sorts of uh, different peoples
2: I know and and then of course I th- as I said I think people who do once they start to look into it I think it's just this as I say it's one of these myths that have kind of been built up over the years that you know predominantly there was African Caribbean presence from 1948 within Britain and of course a lot of the material that we have archive material and also our library collection dispels all dispels all that we have a lot of individual stories of you know that dis- again you know proves that um you know there was this you know a contribution this huge contribution of african and caribbean people and i think it's particularly i think um it's forgotten about um from the first and second world war conflicts and i think that is becoming more well known now with um the sort of the history um, being expanded. You know, there, there were people who were contributing much earlier, whatever it might be a small way, but they, they were you know, contributing and, and, and you know, being part of the community. For example, I gave a talk about George Africanus um, a couple of weeks ago who was uh, um, an enslaved individual. He came from Sierra Leone from the age of three, but he was fortunate enough to become part of the um, Molyneux he was freed at the age of eighteen. Um, I better
0: do a little bit of a handbrake. Uh, okay. <laughs> John, part, what is part of the Molyneux mean?
2: Uh, sorry, the um, the Molyneux, uh, John Molyneux, Benjamin Molyneux was the head of. He was a he was a merchant, um, wealthy merchant who lived in Wolverhampton. Because we know that, although we don't know exactly who bought. Um, George Africanus originally and how he ended up at um, as being part of the Molyneux household, but we do know that he came into Liverpool and then he next appears as part of the, Mo- of the Molyneux household in Wolverhampton. They were very kind and generous to him and they, you know they educated him and they gave him training as a brass founder. And so when he came to the age of 18 he was freed and then he was able to make his own way but he decided to move into Nottingham and um he was uh, known as an entrepreneur, and he had his own um staff agency, very sort of early agency where um he would um, direct uh servants to particular households private households obviously he was very well aware of being part of the molyneux household who the other private householders were or who who the other wealthy merchants were so he had that knowledge and um decided to 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 use it and and he was part of the nottingham society you know he was a he was a watchman which was like an early um police force and he lived to the ripe old age of 71 and um and he's uh, well remembered even now in nottingham he has a blue plaque and um, he has a a tram named after him <laughs> as well as a beer a nottingham beer named after him so um so his legacy kind of continues. That's a so, very
0: random selection of dedication. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and,
0: and what strength of character somebody must have to have, because goodness knows that uh, a mixed-race couple at the moment faces mm. all sorts of difficulties, but to be claiming the name and obviously be not the same colour, the same race as the family who mm. owns that
2: name. Well, we don't know for certain, because the material that we have that we know of is mostly, you know, sort of uh, very... Um, births marriages deaths census material so we we don't have any of his writings um so we don't know personally how he must have felt he probably was the lone african at some point there might have been more african caribbean people coming in to nottingham over that time but there probably would have been more in london i would have said by all accounts you know there was no animosity you know i think he married a lady called esther and who was a white lady and so then there was no animosity so 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 we understand but we don't we'll never know for certain because he never left um any of his own writings we could hypothesise that may not have been as easy for him. He may well have, you know, suffered uh, some uh, racial, whether it be verbal abuse or or physical abuse. I mean, we do have accounts of racism from the uprisings and and riots much earlier than the the well-documented 1981 here in Brixton, but there's been um, uprisings in Cardiff in 1919... There were uprisings in 1946, I think, in London, and that's mostly been about jobs and uh, where African and Caribbean people were employed, uh, mostly in the main as merchant seamen. Then, of course, when the men came back from war, there was this animosity of you know of jobs and uh, and you know sort of frictions um, grew. From there, so it's always kind of fluctuated, and it's and it's been much much earlier as well. I mean, um, if you read the the Peter Fryer Stame Power book, um, the way that uh, racism has um, begun uh, not only within Britain but with many other countries as well, um, it's it's been a very kind of gradual trickle through media representation and that's like sort of propaganda many many years ago through newsletters through postcards through song sheets some of which we have examples of and then as you get further on into advertising there's these kind of stereotypical individuals who are continually portrayed and of course the most well-known one is the Robertson Jam the the golly figure but there have been others so
0: just lingering on that figure does that uh, does that suggest a sort of person or is that just a an ugly representation of a, a generic black person is, is, is there something pejorative in particular that's being said with that image
2: with the go- with the golly uh well it's yeah it's difficult i mean i can't, i don't know a great deal about the, the history all i know is that from the very early like 1900s the golly was featured in children's books um, Florence K. Upton did a whole series of, of books about that character, but he was the hero in that character and he used to go on adventures with his his two Dolly friends. But then we get <laughs> it's, it's, into... <laughs> it's a full, full house then in terms of <laughs> offensiveness. A, yeah, right. I know. <laughs> but then we get into Helen Bannerman coming in in the 20s and then, of course enid blighton a little bit later in the 50s and the the character kind of changes in his portrayed as very inferior and um naughty and um and i think that's what i find most you know sort of uneasy is the fact that this kind of portrayal of in general of african and caribbean it you know as a communities. Was was being fed to young children and kind of being perpetuated the 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 kind of roles and also through advertising.
0: Maybe a picture of what 1981 in Brixton looked like would be (laughs) useful. And in my mind, it was it was a bit of a furnace. There was a lot of
2: Mm. unrest going on. Yes, and that was kind of built up over a number of years, really, all throughout. there you know, there was more heightened racism um from the late fift- you know, fifties on into the sixties and that was through, you know, so continued um difficulty trying to get jobs, um, difficulty trying to find just a roof over your head um, I mean there's the well documented um, and we had actually a photograph Charlie Phillips um, who's a, a Jamaican photographer with the, the advertisements that would be often put in the window saying no blacks, no Jews, no dogs so there was that kind of battle they were having to every, you know, almost every day uh, having to sort of get over and it was this continual friction between the police and the black communities and the way that the police generally thought about african and caribbean communities on the whole in general a lot of policemen not all of them but a lot of policemen would think they were up to no good you know they were they were doing doing bad things and it was through that kind of general Friction, and also because um, the stop and search law that was quite prevalent at the time, which is still kind of going on to this day, was generally targeted towards young black men. They would be stopped, and you know, searched, and, and asked questions. So it was this continual, you know, the police and and just trying to make their way, just trying to live a life, you know, have a job, have a roof over their heads. Um, that was grinding, grinding, grinding. There'd been kind of pockets of resistance and uprisings before. Of course, there was uh, the well-documented mangrove case, the Mangrove Nine, in 1970, and um, that was a restaurant that was continually raided in Notting Hill, um, which resulted in nine people being arrested, and uh, a year later they were all acquitted, um, which was a seminal case at the time.
0: What were they arrested on suspicion of?
2: Uh, oh, lots of things like um, you know a general affray, assault of a policeman, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, all nine of them were you know acquitted, and I think um, quite a few individuals um, and as Howe was amongst them. They didn't have a, a lawyer present; they just kind of uh, defended themselves, and then they were all successful in uh, acquitting. You know, it just kind of broke down. It just kind of proved that there was this kind of trumped-up charges kind of going on, you know, and the police were looking for any excuse in the main to grade these places. I think because they particularly thought at the time, and that's one of the things that we're going to look at in the Being Human Festival workshops that we've got coming up with the National Archives um, next month, police thought that there was a lot of... Activity going on in these restaurants. Well, they was uh, they thought there was lots of drugs going on. They you know, they kept thinking, you know, or there was, uh, but I think it was under the banner of they they were trying to catch individuals who they thought were protesting, and you know who were meeting there to kind of plan whatever protests and whatever they were doing. So I think it was under the banner of you know we think there's drugs here. We think you know. So th- it's quite interesting that. The National Archives have all these kind of government reports of things that were going on, and, and the police accounts afterwards, and a lot of, and and then we've we've got the other side of the coin, the documentation and and the kind of newsletters and and the reporting that was going on of of these events to the wider African and Caribbean community. I was a bit rambling. <laughs> no, it wasn't at all. No, it,
0: it was uh, the, the name of that collaboration you mentioned was being human, wasn't it?
2: Yes. And, and uh,
0: I, I just with that idea of being human, I mm-hmm. wondered, looking around the reading room here, I wondered what sort of proportion of the materials here have in their origin the fact that white people, to one level or another, have decided that black people are not mm-hmm. sufficiently human, or are lesser humans, or are not to be treated as humans. Um, is is oh. this is this a dominant theme?
2: Not a dominant theme, no. And as I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of uh, individuals who have contributed and in some ways have made great contributions to British society and so we have a lot of their individual stories within our autobiography, biographical collection and there are also um, achievements and and the the kind of general history of the black presence within London and within Britain on a wider scale. So it's not all, no. I'd I'd say it's probably half and half Um, but of course what we we want to what we're always trying to um there was that part of history and of course that did happen but we don't we don't want to dwell on that too much what we want to is have you know more individuals or more organizational stories about um you know achievements and, and to celebrate those
0: Right, and, and that was one of the thoughts that then Garrison, the one of the co-founders here, had, wasn't it? He was, yes. I think the quote goes, the place was founded on the back mm. of this quote, where, where are our heroes, our martyrs, My, yes. our monuments? Yes. Where are the monuments?
2: Well, yeah, that's good. <laughs> there's not many. Um, in fact, to, to black British individuals or black British people, I don't think there is any... Um,
0: Worryingly, outside yeah. this place, there's yeah. a there's a bus to uh, Henry Tate, the sugar magnate, of mm. all the people to be outside the Black mm. Cultural Archives.
2: Well, it's yeah, it's just to to one side. As David Olasoga in his recent program highlighted, there is this forgotten slave trade, and of course, uh, there is wherever you go with it, particularly within London. I think you could nearly always trace some sort of building in some way to the transatlantic slave trade and the money that was produced and many individuals who profited including henry tate but it's kind of ironic that some of the money he used for that was to build a public library for for people to use here so um, yeah it's bizarre
0: we're going to take a very quick break actually a word from uh... Sponsor, what are we going to do when we get back?
2: Uh, We're going to go to the exhibition space to look at the new Black Georgians exhibition, which is on until the 9th of April.
0: Okay, let's go. The Week magazine is a concise, refreshing and balanced take on the news from the past seven days. Taken from over 200 print and online sources, we give you the best news, comments and opinion from the UK and overseas, bringing you up to date with everything you need to know. What's more, you'll also get the lighter side of the news with the latest arts, people, food and drink, travel, properties and much more. Available in print, digital or both, it's the perfect solution for anybody who wants an intelligent and independent view of what's going on in the world. Don't just take our word for it, get your first issue free. Sign up at www.theweek.co.uk Londonist you're listening to Londonist Out Loud, I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, we're at the Black Cultural Archives in Brixton and with me, Victoria Northridge. And we're looking at a, uh, well we're at the start of the exhibition and the mm. subtitle interests me, it's Black Georgians, The Shock of the Familiar.
2: Mm.
0: What does that mean?
2: Yes, uh, well I think it is because, um, as I was mentioning earlier, not many people may realise that there was a presence of you know, African Caribbean people in Britain at that time. But it's also the fact that um, even though if people might have been aware, they might have thought, oh, they were all enslaved and you know, they were um, working in the main, which a lot of them were as indentured um, servants... But there were um, individuals who were breaking free and um, one of the things that we do within this exhibition is highlight those individuals but also the different themes um, that were going on at the time of that whole Georgian period. Uh,
0: In terms of breaking free, would you only be able to do that if you were part of the servant class uh, on the goodwill of whoever was in charge of the household?
2: Well, it varied. I mean, there was a... um, There was a a general consensus of opinion that amongst African and Caribbean people and and Oluardo Equiano, who's probably the most well-known individual, thought this. Was that um, if you were baptized, then you had a, a more than a better chance of you know, of, be, of being free you know, of claiming your freedom if, if you were baptized into the Christian faith and that 's one of the things that we do reflect upon um, here in the exhibition, as you can see. There's uh, this is um, from uh, reproduced from London Metropolitan Archives. This is a reproduction of a uh, just one page of a baptism register um, in the parish of Clapham in I think about 1805, and virtually every almost every individual listed on here is uh, of African and Caribbean origin. Um, so, for example, we have um, um, we've got here Yara. Uh, you have to well, now let's room. take a I'm let's like take a, a long run up to this one.
0: <laughs> I'm going to spell it N A M I N A M O D O O. I am going to say Yamanamadoo.
2: Namamadoo, I think <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful, doesn't
0: it? <laughs> I'm not sure I made a good fist of it. <laughs> no,
2: that. no, me neither. Um, but he was let's say Yara. But he was a, a chief of the Port Logo in the Tamani countries. He's age seventeen. And he's baptised here in May uh, 1805. So this is um, this whole page is very reminiscent of uh, young black men in the main, but there were um, older black men as well being brought over as servants. And the usual um, practice was was that they would be baptised, and and a lot of these individuals agreed because um, they thought it was on the pathway to freedom.
0: There's an interesting element here in this note. It says the individuals in this record were pupils at a school for African boys in Clapham. Mm. And th- this is 1805. That seems terrifically anachronistic in a way.
2: Yes. Yeah, well, I think that goes could we go back to the, to the shock... It's the shock of the familiar, so I don't know much about this. This is where Steve would be. Um, Steve Martin, who is the curator of uh, Black Georgians' exhibition, would be able to give you a bit more background information. But,
0: we, we, um, yes, we, sh- we should say that you've yeah. stepped into the breach at the <laughs> very know. last minute, and you're, do- you're doing an excellent uh, job, if you don't mind me saying so. We should contextualise, actually, because we yeah. are coming up to the end of Black History Month, which we've hardly uh, mentioned yeah. at all and uh, I I think one or two people are uh, wiping their brow and uh, sitting down in a quiet corner, and other people are taking a bit of time off as it's all beginning to grind to a close. Uh, How's how's Black History Month been for you?
2: Uh, It's been great, but as we say here, it's Black History Month every day, so it's not just for the month of October, it's every day of the year. So um, we're always, you know, trying to... I mean, we're trying to put on two main exhibitions a year... and and have um, uh, pop-up exhibitions as well and a whole range of programme events and activities for both um, learning, uh, general programme and uh, collections outreach.
0: We're surrounded, of course, by pictures of various sorts. There's a tapestry here of Phyllis Wheatley. She's sitting at a desk writing, which, by the way, for uh, for the period that that was produced would be quite an unusual skill to have, presumably. Mm. Um, We can see oil paintings depicting black and white people together in, in 1761. How difficult, given what you've said already, how difficult is it to assemble the materials for an
2: exhibition like this? Well, we were quite lucky in that um, with this particular exhibition, um, there was an individual collector um, who's donated, uh, or loan, sorry, uh, quite a lot of the original pictures that you see here, Leslie Brainer-Comey, um, who's an art collector from Manchester. But we were also... I mean, we do have some items from our own archive collection and uh, we were also able to uh, obtain reproductions from, as I mentioned, uh, London Metropolitan Archives and also the National Archives of some of the original documentation. We've got sort of four key themes within this particular exhibition. So we have the kind of the beginnings, the life, the beginnings. So that is most of the people... um, coming in as enslaved individuals. And um, then we go into the life and community, so how African and Caribbean people were generally living um, within Britain and how they were integrating and, um, you know, making a living. And there's some individuals, but also... um, General overviews of you know how people were living in rural areas, how they were in pubs, (laughs) local pubs. um.
0: Yes, we're looking at some framed images here. There, Hogarthian. I think they're Mm -hmm. actually by Cruikshank, but we've got revelry going on in a tavern of some sort, Mm -hmm. and there at the forefront is a Mm -hmm. black woman hitching up her skirts and dancing.
2: Yes, <laughs> so you get a uh, you get a, a, a whole um, a whole array of uh, yeah mostly by Crookshank, but we do have I think one or two by Hogarth. Um, there was also um, how people were making a living, and predominantly at that time there were quite a lot of bare knuckle boxers. Um, and the most well-known characters are Tom Molyneux and Bill Richmond. Hold Bill
0: on, Richmond. this isn't the same Molyneux we were talking about before, is it?
2: No, this is a different Molyneux. No, no relation at all. No, no. So Bill Richmond... Well, that's a bit
0: odd, isn't it? If, yeah, if he I took know. somebody else's <laughs> name, Molyneux, and, and this other person's got the name Molyneux.
2: I know, it is a bit odd, but it's just pure coincidence. Okay. <laughs> um, and we've got, we can
0: see yeah. uh, here an illustration of facing Crib, yes. And if you know anything about boxing in this period, you know Crib
2: yes, uh well, this is yeah Tom Molyneux and Tom Cribb, who I think this is a late their their second fight because they had two fights in eighteen ten and then eight and then a year later. I think in the first fight um Tom Cribb uh, beat Tom molyneux um, there was about sort of thirty four rounds it was quite you know which was bare knuckle box fight boxing you know it 's uh, quite uh um, intense and um Unfortunately, um, he he was he was beaten, Tom Molyneux, but um, but he, he came back about a year later, and uh, and in the second in the second um, fight, he he did he did beat Tom Cribb. So this is a, an original print of that event. I think the third theme is death and departure. So it's how individuals, they're kind of people who were being in forced departure, shall we say, and of course there was the repatriation that was going on even then of individuals back to Sierra Leone, which unfortunately was um, hugely disastrous, and Oloardo Equiano was at some point involved in that, and he, he talks about that in his book and the the sort of horrific inequalities and and uh, the kind of lack of um, material that was being uh, delivered to these individuals, and the white person who was meant to be overseeing this was pocketing a lot of the money that was meant to go to these individuals from Sierra Leone to be sort of taken back but uh, there 's stories like that, and there 's also um, William Davidson who was um, a radical. And this uh, original print is highlighting the capture of him and his conspirators, uh, known as the, Cato, the infamous Cato Street conspiracy.
0: Let me give you a picture of the picture. We have an officer of the law in navy blue bursting into the room, it would appear, and he seems to be assisted by several people of varying skin colour and they're. Uh, surprising a group of 'er ne'er-do-wells, one of whom's firing a gun, one of them's getting stabbed through the chest with uh, the officer's sword. Um, And what was this Cato Street gang all about?
2: Well... Is that
0: someone's head on the floor? No, No, that's somebody somebody coming up through a (laughs) trapdoor. It's like the walking dead. (laughs)
2: No, this was. uh, They were um, uh, radicals against the politics at the time, so they were spying into a plot to kill government cabinet officers at the time, and so this original picture depicts that time where um, they were meeting in this hayloft on Cato Street um, in about 1820 and you know sort of meeting to carry out their plot and police officers were tipped off We'd, we still don't know who by and um, about 11 of the conspirators were rounded up as I said and arrested and of course unfortunately Davidson was um, publicly hanged and decapitated outside Newgate Prison I think he was possibly one of the Last public hangings at that time to be shown yeah
0: so the the sections we 've had so far take us through uh, arrival, life and culture, and death, mm-hmm. so presumably the fourth section would have to be all about the aching silence after somebody 's gone
2: yeah well no, it's, <laughs> no not not quite it 's this, this kind of legacy, and the generations of individuals, because of course, many of these uh, individuals married and had children of their own, and so for example, I mentioned Oloardo at Quiano earlier. Um, who was a well-known abolitionist and, um, again, he was uh, from Africa and uh, captured as a young boy and um, endured lots of horrors of enslavement but did manage to free himself and um, became quite well known in London society, and continued to campaign all across um, the UK. Uh, you know, sort of because he, he published his book, um, The Interesting Narrative of the Life of Oloardo Equiano, or Gustavus Vassa, that was his African name. Um, but then he ha- he married, uh, and he had uh, his wife was Susan Cullen, and they had various children, and one of his children was Joanna. And so this is an image of her grave here. I think this is from Abney Park Cemetery. And it's quite interesting because it it really, you know, it just mentions that kind of legacy because on her headstone it says Joanna Vassa, daughter of Oloardo Equiano and the sort of continued remembrance of, of his name.
0: It's quite something to be able to... Leave much of a legacy, isn't it? The life expectancy, as it mentions elsewhere in this exhibition, for, for anybody, average life expectancy in 1820 uh, was 40 years old. And that, that's the average, so mm-hmm. there's a very good chance of you popping your clogs sooner than that. Yes. And I mean, that's for anybody uh, over the age of 40. Mm-hmm. If you had to have all your affairs wrapped up and uh, make a good impression before you go by the age of 40, what, a, what an enormous number. People must have been moving a lot faster and getting on with stuff.
2: Yes, oh, yes, indeed. Um, Yeah, I mean, um, particularly Oluwardo Equiano, um, you know, he, as I said, he was constantly campaigning, going up and down the country, um, you know, giving talks and lectures, promoting the end of the transatlantic slave trade and um, the abolition cause. Um, But he wasn't alone. I mean, he was... was, um, quite well known but there were lots of other and and this last section we have here is um, the literacy legacy so of course we've got Oloardo Equiano there but we do have um, others such as Phyllis Wheatley we mentioned earlier um, who was an individual who was born on a slave ship and um, you know sort of became a part of the Wheatley family and again very fortunate they realised that she was very intelligent and so they encouraged her writing and they published her writings and you know she became very well known within London society
0: Fortunate doesn't go uh, halfway to it does it? If you imagine that you got to roll the dice and be born again into uh, any person anywhere in history. Being born on a, on a slave ship, mm-hmm. that's pretty much the worst start you could hope for, yeah. isn't it?
2: Yeah, and she wasn't alone. I mean, there were, there were others like Ign- Ignatius Sancho, um, who was also born on a slave ship, um, and many, many others that we probably will never know. So when I say fortunate, I mean that, obviously, it was a horrific um, start in life, but... Because they were in in these um, households where the individuals were treating them well and were um, giving them education and were encouraging them and and of course Oardo had it as well you know were encouraging them their um, their freedom and, and you know sort of and um, just helping them as much as they possibly could. We have, you know, still have this evidence because without, say, for example, the Wheatley's, the Wheatley family uh, encouraging Phyllis and, and almost paying for the publishing of her book, we might not have known her story.
0: While well, we've been talking, a figure has sidled interview, I know he's been uh, extraordinarily busy with, what, with Black History Month and one or two other things. Paul Reid, who was meant to be with us uh, earlier on, is with us now. Hi, Paul.
1: Thank you very much. Hello. Thank
0: you very much. So we've looked around the exhibition here and we've explored a little bit of the Black Cultural Archives, but I wonder what you would think about as being the enticement to encourage somebody to come and open your front door.
1: Well, I'm sure that Victoria's covered quite a lot of the detail relating to the exhibition. As much as it is um, really important historical information, I think it's uh, for many people it will be new. Um, there's a lot here that people won't have um, heard about before so it's a layered exhibition on the one hand we have these four incredible individuals to find out more about but as much as we think that we know this story because it runs parallel of course with the enslavement of African people and all the horrors that come to mind when we think about that what this exhibition is also asking us to think about is what was the particular experience of, of the black community in Britain during that time. And we will find that there are some quite interesting images uh, and information here that might uh, challenge the, uh, challenge our views on this.
0: What sort of views are you expecting to challenge? What sort of preconceptions do you think people come to this with?
1: Most people, if we think about this kind of this Georgian period and uh, and the horrors of enslavement, for example, um, and let's not go into the detail there. We can we can, all sorts of images will come to mind. What won't come to mind are are people um, in the pub, in the local inn, down in gin or beer, and not looking particularly oppressed at all. Mm -hmm. So this is talking now to the different, um, I suppose we could talk here now about the complexities of Britain, um, as we find everything from uh, Billy Walter's who is a beggar right the way through to Elizabeth Dido Bell uh, in aristocracy. So it's, it's a complex story, and in that way I think it challenges our perceptions. So I know you've,
0: been, you've had your hands full this month, not, not only with putting the exhibition on. Uh, what else has been going on in terms of Black History Month in and around the archives?
1: Well, first of all, I think there's been an explosion at the moment around Black History Month and, uh, for a whole range of people, um, organisations, individuals, history enthusiasts. It's Black History Month being been a culmination, I suppose, for what happens within the year. It's not just the month, it's what's always happening. Um, and for Black Cultural Archives, of course, we've been putting up the exhibition. We've had a dynamic programme of activities running parallel. I think the most important thing for me is that we're creating now the learning resources um that go into school so we've had school groups here everything from early years little tots running around with high-vis jackets um right away through to older students um grappling now with this inf- uh, important information it's it's really lovely it's, it's wonderful to see and it's great seeing the celebration taking place
0: and uh, i know we've got half term coming up so there's lots of activities for younger folk as well one in particular
1: Well, I particularly like some of the stuff that's happening upstairs uh, in our learning centre. And you'll see some some of the young people engaging with this content now. And some of it takes place, you'll be surprised, behind a sheet... Um, with a light, where they're looking at silhouettes of that period and trying to copy those, and young people draw in and trying to kind of, you know, see what they can do artistically. I mean, one of the things that I like about the, the work that's taking place with young people is that it's happening on so many different levels. You're trying to give people information, but you're also trying to do it in a way that they remember and they retain it. And sometimes that's done through work with artists and work with uh, uh, students and facilitators, all engaging with it in a really wonderful way.
0: And just to to finish, perhaps, on the the archives itself, how long has has your engagement with the archives uh, been in existence? How long have you been
1: there? I joined the Black Cultural Archives in October 2006. And I came um, for six months to be a part of um, completing the Heritage Lottery Fund application for the funding. And we were a small organization at that point, one full-time worker. um, Wow, really? Yeah, one full-time worker and lots of uh, volunteers. And um, my job was to secure the funding.
0: So that was 25 years that the place was in existence, uh, really on a shoestring.
1: Very much so. It was supported by the London Borough of Lambeth and periodically from the Heritage Lottery Fund on um, smaller projects, shall we say. But um, the big push took place in and around 2006, where we really kind of went for this fundraising campaign. And what's wonderful is um, we are now sitting in a space that has managed to generate seven million pounds. Uh, in total, 5.8 million went into the what we call the capital project, that's the build, um, and, and the wonderful uh, grade 2 listed Georgian building that we're in, and uh, 1.2 million was ploughed into the business plan.
0: And... The future is, is what, because uh, uh, there's always the idea of uh, expansion and wanting to reach more people. And it does feel like, um, just looking at Black History Month, it feels like that's reaching more people this year. It seems more, more to be on uh, people's radars than ever before.
1: I must confess, it does feel as if there's a lot happening this year. I'm not exactly sure why that is. It must be because of the Black Cultural Archives. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so modest <laughs> yeah. um, you know and, what? and perhaps you particularly
1: well absolutely yeah. no I mean you know there's, there's a great sector um, and that's ranging from you know the history enthusiast right the way through to the kind of the big um, heritage institution and lots of community activity in between that seems to kind of really focus on this period. I do think though that there's another important conversation which is that we shouldn't be waiting for uh, October mm-hmm. for us to be looking at uh, black history and, and I suppose ultimately what we're looking at is how all of this is mainstreamed into our, into our memory um, and we are looking to the school System, and we look into you know our appreciation of history, um, to be able to see Black presence not tagged on, um, and certainly not tagged on to a colonial story, but absolutely fundamental to the history of Britain.
0: How, how do, I mean? In the last few minutes of the podcast, this is rather an ambitious question to ask. But how do you go about doing that without it becoming some sort of tokenistic effort, and then necessitating doing the same thing for every other cultural or racial group?
1: I think. Every group needs to tell its story, um, or its stories. Um, and for us, we've worked really closely with historians and academics. Um, so it's got to be based on facts. It's got to be. It's got to stand up to academic rigor. Um, and if it exists, and if those stories are compelling, then nobody benefits from hidden stories, you know. And it needs to then be brought to life. And, and you're in an exhibition right now that is full of wonderful stories and that's part and parcel of british history and as much as these are people from africa and we're talking about the african diaspora we're also talking about british history um and that's what we think that we you know that is really important to bring to people's attention
0: One of the great benefits, as any listener to this show will know, is that uh, if you are in an archives, if you're accompanied by an archivist, then they'll be able to take you straight to the good stuff, which is what we've been lucky enough to enjoy today. If you would like to be taken to the good stuff yourself at any point in the future here at the Black Cultural Archives, what's the best way to find out more?
2: The reading room's open Wednesday to Friday, 10 to 4, so um, you can book an appointment via telephone or email. All the details are on our website, or if you just want to come and have a look at the um, library Books, then the library is open every Saturday afternoon, 1 till 4. But the building itself is open uh, Tuesday to Saturday, 10 till 6. If you just want to come and have a browse of the exhibition, or pop into the cafe, or, or um, have a look at our um, shop, we have our website um, which is www.bcaheritage.org.uk. So all the details are on our website. Um, you know all the program events that we have coming up as well, um, and how you can book on those and um, and our opening hours.
0: Oh, well, that's fantastic! Well, thanks for taking us around today, um, Victoria Northridge, and uh, just in the neck of time, Paul Reed. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Victoria Northridge and Paul Reed. Thanks to, to Mark Barr and Bernie Barkley. Female incidental music was by Sons from the Howling Sea and M. Quentin Wolfe.